the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us and uh, tuning in. Always appreciate it. And uh, remember, you can follow the show Download podcasts and all that good stuff at danprofshow.com on the podcast. Also, Spotify, iTunes, on social media at danproft and at danproftshow. And uh, we begin with a letter published in Harper's Magazine from mainly leftists and academia and uh, with some sort of public slash celebrity profile. A letter on justice and open debate. This has been reported as a a letter calling for the end of the cancel culture before these leftists are ended by the cancel culture. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm not buying it. Count me as a skeptic. There's already a couple of signatories who've announced that they didn't sign the letter. They don't support the letter or they're apologizing for having signed the letter. (laughs) The cancel culture is already coming for them for writing a letter calling for an end to the cancel culture, which I suppose they should have anticipated, right? Here's what they write. The idea that this is some of the content here is controversial or profound in any way is absurd. The signatories, which include such uh, noted Americans as Gloria Steinem, Nadine Strawson, J.K. Rowling, not an American, but uh, celebrity, Noam Chomsky, a lot of academics, David Brooks from The New York Times. Oh, yeah. David Blight from Yale. A lot of uh, elite universities represented. Michelle Goldberg, uh, Barry Weiss, big media darlings, Chicago, D.C. press corps media darlings, of course. Harvard University professors, Orlando Patterson, Ron Sullivan, Jr. And it's not just the left. It includes also some friends of our show and uh, intellects who I have great respect for. Coleman Hughes at the Manhattan Institute, John McWhorter at Columbia. I don't know how those two came to sign this letter. I think they should rethink it for all kinds of different reasons. But to the letter, our cultural institutions are facing a moment of trial. Powerful protests for racial and social justice are leading to overdue demands for police reform, along with wider calls for greater equality and inclusion across our society, not least in higher education, journalism, philosophy and the arts. But this needed reckoning has also intensified a new set of moral attitudes and political commitments that tend to weaken our norms of open debate and toleration of differences in favor of ideological conformity. Mm-hmm. There's a kicker here, but you got to wait for it. The free exchange of information and ideas is daily becoming more restricted, more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, huh? consciousness is also spreading more widely in our culture. Uh, consciousness. Censoriousness. <laughs> there, um, I'm falling into the woke trap. Censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture. The cancel culture censoriousness is a product of the so-called radical right, whoever they are. I'm sorry, what, what institutions are they in charge of? 
is this a new phenomenon or um, am I remembering correctly my undergrad days at Northwestern some uh, two and a half decades ago uh, where uh, this was in beginning to blossom? Do people not remember or do want not want to acknowledge? Has this been a race too? the culture on campus in the late 80s and early 90s when you had speech codes being advanced? the uh, beginnings of the ascent of identitarian politics. Do you remember Donna Shalala, who went on to be uh, Clinton's HHS secretary, you'll re- recall? The putty-faced molester of dogs, as P.J. O'Rourke termed her. Remember her when she was at University of Wisconsin? She was at the forefront of speech codes on campus. But apparently uh, none of this got to all of these deep thinkers that have signed this letter. Okay. It's all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought, they write. You don't say. The stifling atmosphere will ultimately harm the most vital causes of our time. The restriction of debate, whether by a repressive government or an intolerant society, invariably hurts those who lack power and makes everyone less capable of democratic small d participation. But I think they also mean big D. The way to defeat bad ideas is by exposure, argument and persuasion not by trying to silence or wish them away. If we don't defend the very thing on which our work depends, we shouldn't expect the public or the state to defend it for us. Yeah, I'm not buying it. Sorry, I'm not buying their commitment to these rather uh, rudimentary concepts. They should be rudimentary. They're in controversy now in this country, which is uh, a real commentary, the real commentary. The idea of uh, a free society being a free marketplace of ideas where persuasion, not coercion, carries the day. They they think they've uh, found uh, the lost city of Atlantis or something here. This is a wonderful discovery they've made. These are things we used to learn in the primary grades. Oh, and by the way, as I mentioned, Carrie Greenidge is one of the signatories on the letter in Harper's. Uh, She tweeted out, I do not endorse this Harper's letter. I am in contact with Harper's about a retraction. Carrie Greenidge is a uh, a race studies professor. She's characterized as a historian, but she's really a uh, identitarian professor at Tufts University. Again, one of our elite private universities. Mm -hmm. Author and trans activist Jennifer Finley Boylan also expressed regret for having signed the letter. I did not know who else had signed that letter. I thought I was endorsing a well-meaning, a vague message against Internet shaming. I did not. I did know Chomsky, Steinem and Atwood were in. And I thought good company. The consequences are mine to bear. I'm sorry. Oh, gosh. What happened? She's a trans activist, J.K. Rowling, who's a leftist, but she's not on board with calling women men and men women. And so this trans activist, Jennifer Finney Boylan, uh, she doesn't want to be on anything, I assume. J.K. Rowling is the offending party and probably in addition to some other sensible people on this list from Jonathan Haidt, you know, Heterodox Academy, formerly NYU. Uh, and, and as I mentioned before, John McWhorter, Coleman Hughes, Francis Fukuyama. These are serious intellects. The consequences are mine to bear. I'm so sorry. I don't know if that apology is going to cut it with the Jacobins, Jennifer Finney Boylan, author, trans activist. Sorry. You know, there is no contrition when you uh, commit a transgression of this magnitude, you know, standing for free thought and free speech. But here's the thing. Remember, I said at the outset, there's a kicker. Here's the kicker from the letter, which is why I question 
the uh, judgment of Col- uh, friends of the show, people I respect, like Coleman Hughes and McWhorter, for signing this letter. Height as well, and others. We raise our voices against the forces of illiberalism. The forces of illiberalism are gaining strength, they write, throughout the world and have a powerful ally in Donald Trump who represents a real threat to democracy. Resistance must not be allowed to harden into its own brand of dogma or or coercion, which right-wing demagogues are already exploiting. So uh, help me here. You're writing a letter in opposition to the cancel culture that you, by logical inference, say is a real thing. It's a real thing that needs to end. But you're also saying it's uh, the product of right-wing demagogues. I say again, uh, those right-wing demagogues, whoever they are, the radical right, whoever they are, what do they control? What institutions do they control? How is it that they are constricting debate? They're over at Twitter, Facebook, Google, higher ed, K-12, corporate boardrooms, churches even. Where are they? Be specific about how it is, uh, you know, conservatives, which is what they mean when they say right wing demagogues, which is what they mean when they say the radical right, just uh, conservatives like myself. Where is it that we are exactly narrowing the parameters of discussion in this country? You're afraid. I mean, the subtext of this couldn't be clear. You on so many of these signatories who are of the left are afraid of your own people. You're afraid of your fellow travelers who are in a bit more of a rush than you are because they're a bit less comfortable in their sinecures than you are. This is a, a, a letter of appeasement to the Jacobins. That's what this is, which is why, much like the, uh, fr- the, the, the much overhyped free speech declaration that came out of the University of Chicago five years ago, this is overhyped. There was very little behind the flowery prose in that University of Chicago letter stating the principles of free speech on campus, what they should, what they are, University of Chicago, which they're not, what they should be, which they're not, college campuses generally, and so is the case here. A politicized apology masks in high and a high-minded but phony commitment to free thinking and free speaking and a free America. That's what this is. All right, coming up, we're going to uh, switch gears and uh, speak with Dominic Green from Spectator USA. He's got some questions about the arrest of Ghislaine Maxwell and some questions about uh, the handling of the Epstein-Maxwell criminal conspiracy for, say, the last 15 years by the FBI. We'll uh, have that discussion with Dominic Green coming up. Hey, but don't you want to go down? Like some junkie Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Ghislaine Maxwell, such promise. Just six years ago, she was prepared to dedicate her life to saving the planet. 1,500 feet, I switched on the lights, hoping to see a new mythical sea creature. But in fact, what I saw was a plastic hanger. (gasps) 
I was so absolutely devastated, but it was at that moment that I realized that I was really going to dedicate the rest of my life to uh, taking uh, an involvement with and bringing an education around uh, the ocean. Mm -hmm. And instead, she dedicated uh, the rest of her life as a free woman to sex trafficking underage girls. So many questions surround her arrest, why she was in New Hampshire, uh, why now, uh, what information does she have that could implicate those who participated in the illegal activities that Jeffrey Epstein and she arranged uh, for some additional questions and perhaps some answers and insights. We're pleased to be joined again by Dominic Green, the life and arts editor of Spectator USA, contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the new Criterion. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Um, you, you've got questions surrounding uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, too. Uh, in the uh, the four or five days now that she's been in custody, do we have any more insight as to the timing of the arrest, why she was in New Hampshire rather than in France or Britain, and uh, just what exactly she may be able to offer and on whom she may be able to offer it? Well, these are the questions, aren't they? I mean, if you were Jelaine Maxwell and uh, your longtime friend and protector Jeffrey Epstein who died in dubious circumstances, would you have stuck around given that you knew the FBI wanted to talk to you and that you were suspect number one? Uh, she has British passports. She has French passports. Uh, she has lots and lots of money. Therefore, there must have been a reason why she chose to stay in the U.S. She would have made a decision about what was the safest option. And it's a very strange thing. Why would sticking around in order to be picked up by the FBI at some point be the safest option? So to me, it doesn't really add up. It looks more like uh, she decided to stay in the U.S. because she believed, and this is what I've heard from more than one source, she believed she was still covered by the immunity deal that Epstein worked out in Florida in 2007. There's some there's um, some there's been some suggestion that uh, Epstein and or Maxwell may have been FBI informants at some point. Well, we have a document from 2008 when Epstein was uh, convicted on this. What now looks like a, a suspiciously easy plea deal mm -hmm. in Florida. Uh, we have an FBI document from 2008 saying that in return for this, Epstein, and I quote, provided information to the FBI. Uh he, I'm told, uh, insisted also that Maxwell be excluded from any prosecution uh, in Florida, despite the fact uh, that we know from the unsealed court documents that her name was all over them as well as his. So from, from that point onwards, you have to assume that the FBI has some kind of interest in this and that she has some kind of relationship with it. And legally speaking, there is a case to be made. And of course, she's got very good lawyers now. They're going to make the case that she's still covered by that immunity. Well, and, and so that's interesting. So one, that immunity deal was also highly unusual. I don't know what Alex Acosta was doing, but that is very, very strange to offer immunity for known as well as unknown co-conspirators prospectively. Uh, that's Wouldn't what we all like one of those. Yes, exactly. right. Uh, an astonishing thing, uh, really. Yeah. Costa didn't know what he was doing because afterwards he, he said at the, in 2016 that, you know, he was told to back off because uh, right. Epstein, quote, belonged to intelligence. And then he decided he didn't know what he was saying and said, no, it's not true. I didn't say that. It didn't happen. Right. Um, the whole thing is utterly murky and in it doesn't reflect well at all, of course, on the FBI or any of the uh, government employees who but, bungled the prosecution. But hasn't a federal judge interceded on that non-prosecution deal? 
and said that that well, yes, was unconscionable the, and it, it's, it is not in, in force? Well, of course they are now, yes. What's amazing and what we should be asking is, is why was it uh, possible to argue otherwise for 12 years, given what we've known subsequently about Epstein? The whole thing should have been scrubbed immediately. Um, another thing which came out just yesterday, in fact, was that Deutsche Bank had been fined $150 million for money laundering on Epstein's behalf as late as 2013. Mm-hmm. So... You know, both Epstein and Maxwell were allowed to continue operating for a long time, more than a decade. And, and, and that is a question we should ask. How exactly was this allowed to take place? And why exactly was this allowed to take place in the decade between the Florida deal and Epstein's death? Uh, also, uh, with Randy Andy helping her by doing BBC interviews to explain how innocent he is. Uh, if he does one more of those, then uh, I think he'll be indicted in absentia just on what he says, much less uh, what she has to say. Well, it's true, but of course, he, in a way, is exculpating her of this charge. When he's trying to dig himself out of it, he's also digging her out by saying, no, there was nothing untoward, nothing happened, I don't know her, I don't know anything. Um, It is possible also that these sex charges against Maxwell relate to events in 1994 to 1997. That's quite a long time ago. Obviously, the FBI has built up a case, Uh, Epstein's domestic staff, housekeepers, who are also alleged to be uh, kimping children to him, they've all disappeared. Uh, So the chances are that they've testified and been tucked away somewhere. You'd imagine the FBI has a strong case. But the perjury charges against Maxwell from 2016, these aren't, you know, they're not that big and they're not likely to make much of a difference. It's almost like they're stacking these charges on top in order that it might all add up. You know, I, I tell you, decent yeah, you know, the, the, the six counts against her it seemed to me light as well. And it seemed to me they were looking to make it see, appear more substantial than it was, even despite the, the, the serious nature of the charges we're discussing. I, I mean, I just go back again to the Palm Beach Police Department in, you know, 06 to before the feds took it over. They put together a case with what they report was 35 to 40 uh, girls who are willing to testify to what happened to them, what they, what Epstein and Maxwell did. And here we are more than a decade later, and we're basically talking about still the work product from the Palm Beach Police Department, the only uh, organization that comes out looking good from the information that we know and has been more, more memorialized in that Filthy Rich documentary series is the Palm Beach Police Department. Here we are again talking about the Department of Justice and the FBI uh, either engaged in uh, very dubious, unethical activity or or, or just uh, exhibiting rank incompetence. I don't know which, but as you probably know from that documentary, there were FBI agents that were decrying what wasn't happening with Epstein back in 06 to 08 to after that plea deal and to the intervening decade. Absolutely. And, of course, we should always remember that incompetence is a very powerful driver of these things. But what we do have, and, and, this, and this is a crucial thing about what happened in Florida, you're right, the Palm Beach Police Department did the right thing. They assembled this massive file that would have been enough to put away Epstein, and we have to imagine Maxwell for life. And the FBI, for its own reasons, decided not to pursue that file. And that is one question which is very clear to us. You know, there's a lot of murky allegations and he says, she says about the whole Epstein saga. But this is one thing we have on paper, clearly documented. The FBI chose not to prosecute them. Therefore, we should ask, why didn't it? Mm. And of course, 
Maxwell may well know the answer to that question. He is Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor of Spectator USA, contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the New Criterion. Dominic Green, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back. Uh, We uh, discussed this piece earlier in the week from Michael Schellenberger at environmentalprogress.org. He's uh, uh, often, you get his work in Forbes, which is where I've read his work over the last. uh, year or so and uh, try to bring it to you on this program because it's always a very thoughtful, very good, uh, well-sourced. And so this remarkable piece uh, where he apologizes, apologizes. Uh, This uh, gentleman who's been an environmentalist, uh, he he describes for 30 years, a climate activist for 20 years. He writes, on behalf of environmentalists everywhere, I would like to formally apologize for the climate scare we created over the last 30 years. Climate change is happening. It's just not the end of the world. Not even our most serious environmental problem, he writes. Why did it take him so long to uh, cop to the the demagoguery and the fear-mongering? He writes, I, I mostly avoided, until last year, I, most, I mostly avoided speaking out against the climate scare, probably because I was embarrassed. After all, I'm as guilty of alarmism as any other environmentalist. But mostly I was scared. I would remain quiet about the climate disinformation because I was afraid of losing friends and funding. A few times I summoned the courage to defend climate science from those who misrepresented it. I suffered harsh consequences. So mostly I stood by and did next to nothing as my fellow environmentalists terrified the public. Well, I mean, that's the sort of self-accountability that is just rare from public figures, number one. Number two, it's such a relevant uh, mea culpa to the time because don't we have people taking dogmatic positions now with respect to race relations, with respect to COVID-19? that aren't necessarily supported by anything other than their own sense of moral rectitude. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Schellenberger, the founder and president of Environmental Progress, Time Magazine Hero of the Environment, invited expert reviewer of the next assessment report for the IPCC, and the author of the recently released Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Good to talk to you. Hey, thanks for having me. So, I mean, just you, you lay this out in uh, great detail at environmentalprogress.org, but I, just a little bit more background on sort of what was the trigger for you to decide to offer this apology? And then, of course, what has been the response to uh, your fellow environmentalists, who I'm sure you've come to know and, and befriend over three decades in the uh, in the uh, the space? Well, I had a lot of reasons for writing this book. I mean, I there, you know, I can kind of break them into two. I mean, one of them was I just was upset by the ways in which misinformation about climate change has been used to scare people in general, but adolescents in particular, anxiety and depression are rising in the United States. Suicides are rising. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think we don't want, we we should not add to those anxieties with climate change. So I dedicated the book to my kids who are between the ages of 14 and 21. I wanted um, people of that age to be able to read this book. It's It's a book full of stories and characters and really try to write as clearly and plainly as I could. The other reason I was motivated was, was because a friend of mine, um, who became a friend of mine because I understood the science he was doing, 
had just been absolutely vilified, um, totally unfairly. He's a professor at the University of Colorado named Roger Pelkey, and he's like one of the world's experts on whether or not climate change is making natural disasters worse. And the answer is they are not. And we know that because natural disasters are not getting worse, they're getting better, <laughs> by which I mean fewer people are dying, 90% decline in deaths from natural disasters, which we should be celebrating and shouting from the rooftops because the news is so great that we have been able to save so many lives while the population quadrupled. And then there's no increase in costs from disasters. So, so, so he has been vilified for that. I felt guilty because I did not speak up for him properly, which is to say I did at one point attempt to speak up for him, but I basically chickened out at the moment in which my help was needed as somebody who was in a position to help him and as in a position to help him. And I knew that actually being able to help him and also to kind of take some responsibility for the times that I had called climate change a crisis or an emergency or said even more extreme things, including in major magazines that I now regret, I knew that I didn't want to just apologize in a kind of cheap way because I think there's a way to do it cheaply, you know. Um, oh, I'm sorry about that, guys. <laughs> You know, I'm a public intellectual. I've been a writer, you know, I've been working and researching and writing on this and speaking on it for a very long time now. Um, I've been an environmental activist for 30 years. I've been writing seriously on it for 15. Um, and I knew I had to do something serious. So I did, I basically did a book that is, I sort of joke that it's an environmental studies textbook hidden in a kind of you know, commercial nonfiction book, I, yeah, <laughs> a and, book of journalism. And, I, and let's and I, it, let, let, let's hold right there and let's let's pick it up right there when we come back, because I also want to get your sense of the uh, fear mongering. How much of it comes from a good place and how much of it comes from a malicious place? More with Michael Schellenberger. Uh, he is the founder, president of Environmental Progress and the author of the recently released book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. We'll be right back. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. back with Michael Schellenberger, the founder and president of Environmental Progress, Time Magazine Hero of the Environment uh, designee, invited expert reviewer of the next assessment report for the IPCC, and author of the recently released book that uh, is must-reading, certainly just based on this summary of it in uh, his piece at environmentalprogress.org, the book title Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. We were talking before the break about sort of your mea culpa and the basis for it. And and I wonder about uh, the uh, hysteria that has been induced by some uh, in the environmental movement that you describe and you suggest you participated in, at least in some way, over the course of your three decades as an environmental activist. How much it comes from a, 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 a decent place saying we need to you know be a little bit uh, over the top so this gets attention because there's some serious underlying issues and how much of it is malicious, meaning I want to use this not to save the environment, but for some other political motivation. Uh, You're asking the exact right question, by the way. Thank you for asking. I haven't been asked it quite like that. Um, 
But I think a lot of people want to know, I certainly want to know why, if environmental problems are, are real and often serious, but manageable, and certainly not the end of the world. I mean, seriously, like there's no mechanism even for them to be apocalyptic. Um, why did we come to think they were apocalyptic, right? Because the difference between what reality is and what people imagine is so huge that literally my daughter's friends and young people in their teens literally don't know if the, if the world is going to still be there when they are ready to have kids. That's nuts, right? So how do you get that? Who allows that? What scientists? Why would the scientists allow this? Why would the journalists allow this? Why would they participate in it? Well, I mean, as you might imagine, most people are very are just innocent in the sense of they, they just don't know. I mean, I did an interview yesterday with the, with the top national climate and environment editor at the Sydney Morning Herald, which is a major newspaper, a major global newspaper in the world, in Australia, of course. Um, he did not understand that disasters were not getting worse. He kept getting confused on it, and we kept talking about it. And part of it was definitional or seems definitional because what disasters are, disaster is not the hurricane, it's not the heat wave, it's not the drought. The disaster is the impact of those weather events, they're called weather events or extreme events, on people and property, all right? That's what a disaster is. It's, if a hurricane never hits land, it's not a disaster. So this is something most people don't know. And, and what I've discovered now it only occurred after Apocalypse Never came out. I've seen them do this. This is actually how they attacked me. And I'm about to write a big piece on it. What they do is they say, they go, now let me tell you why Michael Schellenberger or anybody is wrong about disasters. We can find evidence that extreme events are getting worse. And they point to hurricanes, um, certainly the fire season, as I write about in my book, um, um, you know, heat waves. Um, you know, they do these what are called attribution studies where they can sort of say, ah, we think it was 75% more likely or 25% more likely. And I have no problem with that. I completely agree. And in fact, my book accepts all the IPCC science of climate change, not of what they recommend doing about it, but that, of how climate change is occurring. They don't. IPCC does not. Scientists do not. And there is no basis to suggest that those Things that scientists are discovering with extreme events or weather events have made disasters worse. How could they? Disasters have gotten better. I mean, this is the, you know, this is kind of amazing. I mean, I, I actually asked this reporter, I was like, do you think that your readers, if you ask them whether disasters were getting worse or better, what do you think they would say? And he said they would all say it's getting worse. And I was like, well, whose fault is that? Right. It's his, obviously. So now, on the other hand, he did not understand this. Like he literally, I mean, and he's like one of the most important environmental journalists in Australia. And being that he's a part of the of a, the, one of the most important newspapers in the world, because South Morning, I'm sorry, Sydney Morning Herald is this very important newspaper. It's read all over Asia. Um, so do we blame people for believing what he himself has written or implied? But 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 there's well, probably but, not. But but, but who, that's the levels at which it's operating. Right. And but, but so who's the source of the propaganda that gaslights the, the the editor you're referring to at the Sydney newspaper to believing something that is manifestly untrue? I mean, it's not like there are not other opinions out there. If you take time to read them and consider them yours, 
I would point to Bjorn Lumberg in, in Copenhagen, too, who's written about the human cost that you're describing, uh, that it should be looked through in terms of human cost, the policy choices before us. Uh, so why is that ignored, and why does he just repeat something that some, perhaps some scientist told him without uh, any sort of intellectual curiosity? Well, this is a very interesting question. I mean, here's as far as I think I've gotten. You know, there, you, when you're adding heat, <laughs> into, when you're trapping and adding heat into the Earth system, you're changing things. Um, you know, it really does have an impact. And, I, I, you know, I think they are finding, um, you know, these things, including there's good reason to think heat waves certainly is one of the obvious, most obvious. But there are risks. Right. And so that's why I actually am an environmentalist and a climate advocate. I think something should be done about them. I'm just really pushing back against these these extreme and wrong claims. So I think some of the scientists that are doing it are I mean, everybody's well intentioned. Right. I mean, this is the thing. There's nobody out there with like bad intentions. But I think what I think they think is that by by doing what they're doing, it's justified because it's the only way they know how to get public alarm about the issue. Do you and th- look at how successful it was. Do you think uh, people like AOC, who, you know, as you were sort of uh, referencing earlier, implied, uh, you know, the world could end in 12 years, uh, she is well-intended. Do you think uh, the people who uh, amplify and try to elevate Greta Thunberg as uh, you know, the Joan of Arc of the uh, climate change movement, do you think they're well-intended? I mean, at an almost philosophical level, I kind of think everybody is always well-intended. In other words, I don't think there's people out there that are like, I'm getting up today to do bad things. You know, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis thought they were doing the right thing, right? I think it's important to remember that. When we come back, I want to continue our discussion on quote-unquote good intentions. More with Michael Schellenberger right after this. Keep your hands to yourself. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Michael Schellenberger, and uh, I want to uh, pick up uh, our discussion about intentions. And I, and I get uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Thank you, Samuel Johnson. What I'm saying is that their intentions are not save the planet. Their intentions are I should be in charge. And those are two very different things. That, yes, I would say yes, but they're blind to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so they're blind to it. So that's the part where I think. I think there is, is it intentional? For, I, I, look, I was this way. I mean, I mean, in other words, at the last chapter of the book, where I discussed this question. So I, the last, so the book is in three parts basically. The first third is debunking myths around climate deforestation, plastic waste, species extinction, and then the second third is how do humans actually save the natural environment? How did we save the whales? It wasn't Greenpeace. It was petroleum and vegetable oil, particularly palm oil, <laughs> which were substitutes for whales. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, se- and the last third of the book is why, if these are manageable problems, do we treat them apocalyptically? And I say it's money, power, and religion. And I definitely end on that 
And I turn the question back on myself. I think what was going on for me, um, I find that a lot of these folks, you know, um, and I'm not going to name names, actually, because I think it's better that way, um, often are um, people that are um, depressed, uh, socially, they feel socially isolated. They are looking for a way to feel powerful in the society. Um, there's obviously for politicians, it has a bunch of attractions. For young people, it has a bunch of attractions because it allows for you to sort of stand out, get attention, be recognized as a good person. So if you're feeling anxiety about your self-worth, about your value, why should you even exist? Maybe you sometimes think about not existing because life is pointless. And of course, what you've learned, and this is why this is the religious part, Christianity and Judeo-Christianity and other religions offer a story about what happened, you know, why we're here and what happens after we die. Well, if you stop believing in that, we have known, we can document both now through social science, but we knew it through philosophy. It was heralded by Nietzsche famously as the death of God. Yeah, we, yeah. Knew that, we knew that when people stopped believing in Judeo-Christianity, they would still need something to believe in. And so what environmentalism is, is it's the dominant secular religion of people who don't think they're religious. And so that's the problem. You or I might say we're Jews or Christians or Muslims or Hindu or whatever, and we go, that's my religion. Environmentalists aren't doing that. What they're saying is, I am more in touch with reality than everybody else, than anybody around me. And that's where everything goes, starts to really just go sideways. That's exactly, that's, it was G.K. Chesterton's observation, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. Uh, he is uh, Michael Schellenberger, he's the founder and president of Environmental Progress, Time Magazine Hero of the Environment designee, invited expert reviewer of the next assessment report for the IPCC, and the author of the recently released book, which I, I really I can't wait, wait to read, uh, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental, Alarm, Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Wish we had more time. Michael Schellenberger, great to speak with you, and I, I look forward to doing so again in the near term. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. Take care. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education. Following up on President Trump's uh, push for states to reopen their schools, states and localities to reopen their schools in the fall, in-person education. Betsy DeVos saying that the Department of Education is seriously considering withholding federal funding from school districts that do not make what she termed an honest effort to bring students back for in-person classes this fall. They have got kids have got to continue learning, she said. Right. And we know from. Some of the research that was done by uh, Washington University's IHME on the failure of virtual classroom learning during the shutdown at the end of the last semester, just in terms of participation rates, the number of the percentage of students that were required to do homework, that uh, turned in homework. And then you couple that with the Brown University study that finds that the reading and math gains uh, uh, for students in America their modeling based on their survey research 
that uh, it was a fraction of the math and reading gains you normally get from a full year of instruction in those areas, some on the order of a third to two-thirds of the gains, the intellectual gains. So this turns out to be a real problem. What do you want to do about it? And what do you get from those who are slow walking it? You don't get an assessment of the data with respect to the incidence of infection, much less illness, much less death with respect to kids. You don't get any because it's because K through 12 systems aren't really kid focused. They're adult focused. And you're seeing this at the collegiate level, too. We talked about yesterday, Georgia Tech University professors who don't want to go back, including a chemistry professor who should know better. But I digress. And so. uh you have this uh, this curious case of uh, adults saying I 45 percent of teachers saying I don't want to go back. Why would you want to go back? Right. You're getting paid to. Not work, I suppose. And in addition to that, you get to offer the. I want to teach, but I don't want to die. I want to send my kids back to school, but I don't want them to die as if that is the choice. But those are the quality of arguments or false binaries that are being presented for more on this and so much else with respect to COVID-19. Pleased to be joined again by Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and the former CEO of Johns Hopkins, all children's hospital. Dr. Ellen, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me back. So um, you uh, suggest in a recent piece at the city journal, caution, not panic. I'm, I'm sorry, that is apparently not one of the choices we have. It... <laughs> no, it doesn't seem to be one of the choices we have. What about uh, the return of kids to school, particularly the primary grades? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we definitely have to separate out the college the college kids from the primary primary grades, and um, I, I you know I think it's it's pretty clear that the, the younger kids, even with the the earlier scare, and I guess. Um, panic around the um, the end of the, uh, the disorder, the one that Kawasaki-like disorder that children are getting, that we still think is relatively rare. Um, that young children seem to do well um, with this, and um, I think we, you and I, have had many discussions at this point. But everything's about balance, and where this all gets really difficult is when, between politics and media and all this other noise takes what is meant to be a balanced decision of not having children learning. And, and I, I agree with you. There's no substitution for in-class learning. And on the other hand, and you, you know, if we don't put kids in school in, a, in an effective way this year, that's another year of loss. So it's not a trivial matter for, for these children. On the other hand, you know, there, there is concerns at the local level, you know, how parents are going to react, and then also how teachers are going to react. And I, you know, I'm, I'm I, again. I think you and I always come down on, you know, this is a balance between um, the, the the cost and the benefit. And I think that there's still, you know, we, we don't get we, we we've lost the ability to have a cost benefit discussion. And it gets, like you said, everything's a dichotomy at this point. It's it's been dichotomized. So I think it's a local decision at schools. And parents and PTO and PTAs have to make a decision. And I'm I'm in favor of opening schools with you know all the all the safeguards that they can they can muster. And and even if they have to twist, and I think this is a good faith argument, even if you have to somehow change how the day is structured 
or how many kids come to school in any one day, but get the kids back in the building with teachers, I think is a, it should be done with good faith effort rather than a wholesale, as you said, forget it, it can't be done. Yeah, uh, and, you know, I mean, actually, it's interesting changing the school day. Boy, that's something that's about 50 years overdue. We're, we still run the same school day we were running when Harry Truman was president, not because of uh, anything pedagogical, but because it's convenient for the adults. Uh, we don't have mom at home at 2.30 in so many instances, so why don't we change the school day? We know actually how kids learn, and they learn by starting learn better at the primary grades by starting a little bit later in the day. I mean, all you know, it's just one of those things that this just goes on, and I guess COVID-19 is an overlay to how we do uh, education in this country, particularly at the K-12 through level, which is, as I said before, to the convenience of the adults, not for the focus. It's not child-centered and outcome-driven. I'm, I don't want to get off into a K-12 through discussion, but, but I mean, it, but it, it, it's hard not to because it's just this is what has us rethinking things, but um, in a very myopic way, I would suggest. Getting back to uh, colleges, though, with Harvard and Princeton, Ivy League schools announcing what they're going to do, I mean, that is really interesting. Uh, everybody comes back to campus at Harvard, but um, then everybody does classes in their dorm room online. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit baffled by that, other than as a play to make sure they can still charge full tuition. Right, and that's, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that that issue around the schools charging full tuition by offering some you know, some classes, I mean, it, 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 again, it gets back to the same conversation. What is a rational, reasonable approach? And then what is one that is sort of affected by, you know, here we are talking to colleges where you pay $50,000, $60,000 a year to go. And you might as well watch it if you're watching it online, regardless of where you're sitting. Um, is it really worth that kind of money? And should, you know, the families and the parents and the kids get a rebate? Um, it, it, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't know how they're making their decisions about when, which camp, which colleges are going to actually allow in class. I think Cornell is allowing um, people to come into the classes in the Ivy League. I don't know about um, Penn yet, but well, it, um, yeah, it's and, ridiculous. And, and so, and so, then what do you, then what are you going to have? You're going to have stories like this New York Times story. Um, you know, the the people that are doing what the New York Times wants them to do are uh, not covered. The people who aren't doing what the New York Times wants them to do, just as an example, get covered like yeah. this. Uh, churches were eager to reopen. Now they're a major source of coronavirus cases, major source of coronavirus cases. Um, they, uh, this, uh, this extensive piece they did comes up with 650 cases that are traced back that. to churches. 650! I, I saw that. I was surprised when I got to the number. I was reading the article this morning, and when I got to the number, I was like, "Wait a second, this is a lot about a small number." I, I don't. I was waiting for like twenty thousand. Right. Six fifty didn't work. Perhaps that uh, says something about maybe the. And I, I'm, you know, don't want to read into motives here, but six hundred and fifty out of as a percentage of the caseload is obviously negligible. Uh, and maybe it has something to do with the New York Times attitude towards churches as, say, compared to nursing homes and long term care facilities in certain cities and certain states. I mean, this is the kind of, of 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 propagandizing that really eliminates the possibility for sensible conversation, isn't it? I agree. I mean, that's, I totally agree. I mean, I, that, that's that's what has frustrated me about about all of this is that there's just very difficult to have 
like we keep saying, a cost-balanced conversation that doesn't bring in other perceptions. And in the case of, um, you know, the, the issue around churches, I mean, you know, on the other hand, you say, you know, people needed to get together and they wanted to pray together. So that's so horrible. And then you, and you start with that, then you're like, and they, and it only resulted in 650 cases. Could have been the article. It could have been written in that direction. And, you know, I, I really, I, I just think it sort of sets up, it's the same thing with the schools. Like we said, you could change the hours that they do. Everything sort of, you come from, you know, you interpret what's going on in terms of COVID from your predisposition about different other social issues. And it messes the whole dialogue up. When we come back with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, I want to ask about uh, this uh, op-ed from a Japanese government official on uh, as to how they say they beat coronavirus without lockdowns. Get his perspective on that. More with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Right after that. Profshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Uh, Dr. Ellen, uh, a uh, gentleman who uh, serves as ja- uh, Japan's Minister of State for Economic Revitalization and who was the minister in charge of the country's COVID-19 response, uh, Yasutoshi Nishimura, writes in the Wall Street Journal that uh, uh, by following the science developed by world-renowned experts, Japan has been able to avoid the worst effects of the pandemic without mandatory lockdowns. How have we done it? High-quality medical care helps. Social and cultural factors might be at play, too. However, the core insight that has helped us in our fight against COVID-19 is the notion of transmission clusters. Early on, our health experts noticed that the disease spreads in a peculiar way. Although it's highly contagious, it is not uniformly contagious. That seems to be an important distinction. Most of who are infected by it, about 80 percent, never pass it on to anyone else. The bulk of infections can be traced to a small number of super spreading events. Just as striking, a person with mild symptoms or even none at all could easily cause a super spreading event or a disaster. So that's where they focused on the transmission clusters, like, for example, how different it could have been in the United States had we focused on transmission cultures in nursing homes and long term care facilities. Does that ring true to you, his assessment? Oh, 100 percent true. I don't know if I read the article directly, but or the opinion piece, but I saw I saw a quote about it. My past background of research had always been on understanding that there are these people who are you'll call super spreaders. I call them core transmitters. They're always the distribution of people who infect more people than not is always distributed with a very small percentage, five or 10 percent of the people infect like 70 percent of the people or 60 percent. It's always that kind of that these super spreader events account for more and there's fewer of them, but they count for them. And the idea that, that you would go find these folks and find their contacts or places that they've been and tell people you just were at this place and there was a super spreader there is, is a more effective way to do contact tracing, if you will. Um, then it is, it's called in, in the, in the disease control world, we call it cluster investigation. 
uh, and it's the same thing. And and it's always a more effective tool if you can do it. And and he focuses on what he calls the three C's: closed spaces, crowded places, and close contact settings. Uh, that that uh, he he describes as uh, settings that all pose a major risk of infection. That's not necessarily news at this juncture, but certainly the approach they took and the the focus, right? Not getting far afield yeah. on this or that. The focus, not having as endless debates about masks, but the focus on this um, in terms of you know bringing to bear resources that seems to have been really important. I think everyone in the disease sort of prevention and control world knew that, you know, our, we, we really do rely a lot on contact tracing, and then we rely on very focused and very pragmatic approaches to contact tracing because it's very difficult. I mean, while we also it was talked about as it was an easy thing to do, it's very difficult. Most people can't remember where they've been. Most people can't remember what they did. Mm-hmm. And so you really have to focus your efforts. If you, even with, you know, we had 100,000 and everybody had all the contact tracers they needed, you still have to focus your efforts where you're going to be most effective and use the most effective technology and technique. And um, if we, you can't do it, it's really difficult to do once you're out of control with disease. But when things settle down or earlier on and you can discern where those super spreaders are, you have to be able to find them. You can actually have a more effective approach. Uh, as the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital, I, mean, I wanted to get your sense of uh, how uh, strong our nation's healthcare infrastructure is coming out of the uh, the lockdowns and the flatten the curve uh, phase of of the response. Uh, because there was, as we discussed previously, when you've appeared on the show before, there there seems to at least in part been sort of a a, a, a tragic irony of the approach, which is that we hurt some hospitals economically and thus their ability to be uh, that th- their efficacy in, in treating diseases, not just COVID-19, but all of the above uh, because of our all hands on deck only for COVID-19 to the exclusion of things like elective surgeries, even after it was clear that capacity was not going to be compromised. Right. I mean, I think what we do know is that, um, first of all, it's all very regional. You look at what's happening in some of the cities, particularly like Houston and um, in, in Dade County um, in Florida. Those hospitals, you know, where the disease is really happening are going up. And it, you can see it, like you said, it's on the ground conditions are telling us. And the, a lot of the other areas, we're just not seeing the same kind of overwhelming, you know, even where there's some cases going up. I'm sure Arizona has, has increases. But the, the problem is the healthcare system is getting hit bad by you said you know that when giving up the elective surgeries has hit hurt their bottom line and some hospitals can withstand it and some can't and the ones that really are going to get hurt are the rural hospitals Mm -hmm. because the rural hospitals live on a very thin margin a lot of times they're they're really living off of a lot of federal and state assistance to be able to to make it work and you need to have those hospitals because they create a safety net for for um for people who live, you know, not in a major metropolitan area with large academic medical centers. And so they're really the backbone of care for many, many, many families and, and people. And they're getting walloped in this. I mean, they're just, you know, because they don't, you know, they just, they're, they're just not able to, to sustain what they're doing. People aren't coming out. They're not going to the emergency rooms. So that's really where I'm most fearful is, is the rural hospitals followed by, you know, and then the next sort of the smaller community hospitals. The big academic medical centers, for the most part, 
um, will survive. And if they get hurt a bit, they probably um, they probably got themselves at risk on their own, you know on their own prior to this. Uh, you know, one one thing before we let you go, I, I we t- I talked to uh, uh, Dr. Joseph Ladapo at uh, UCLA yesterday, and I asked him this question. I'll put it to you. Uh, do you think that there is too much emphasis being placed on or, or too much optimism being attached to the uh, development of a vaccine on the timeline that's been suggested even possibly before year end? I know there's, you know, great, uh, uh, great energy behind it, great resources behind it, a lot of inc- uh, some encouraging initial results. And that's great. But it doesn't doesn't it set us up for if it doesn't uh, manifest itself then we're back to the precedents we're operating under now, which is sort of playing whack-a-mole using lo- lockdowns. I, I, I 100% agree. I think that the um, I think the, the the idea of that we'll have a, first of all, I think practically it's going to be hard to pull a vaccine off. That most people are going to have an opportunity to get, you know, and know they're going to get it safely is going to be a stretch um, for a year, and. Um, even with that, I agree with you, which is by having played that up as a panacea, you end up sort of saying rather than have get to the real meat of the problem and say, we're going to be opening up. We need to open the economy. We're going to have increased cases. Not everyone's going to wear a mask. We're going to have more deaths. And we're going to have to decide what our threshold is as, as a county, a state, a society on what we'll tolerate. But by talking about vaccines, it's like deferring any real discussion. And that's where your whack-a-mole point comes in. It's sort of, rather than sort of sort of get to it and sort of try to solve how we're going to go forward, it's all sort of placeholders told us, you know, panacea vaccine comes along. He is Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Ellen, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. And uh, those who've listened to the show before probably heard me invoke this uh, observation by C.S. Lewis. It's not only my favorite C.S. Lewis observation. It's also uh, my personal coda as best I can to live up to it. Fail all the time, but try. And it's this. Courage is the formation of every virtue at its testing point. Courage is the formation of every virtue in its, at its testing point. Translation, if you don't have courage, you cannot be virtuous. It's categorical. Without courage, all of the other virtues you say you possess wilt in the face of being tested. So courage is foundational. And it uh, should be brought to bear in all aspects of one's life. And that's why I so appreciate three gentlemen right now who have exhibited great courage in the last few days and few weeks, three black Americans breaking from the orthodoxy, not just, you know, personally, quietly, but because of their public profiles publicly 
talking about Outkick.com's Jason Whitlock. I'm talking about uh, former NFLer turned actor Terry Crews. And I'm talking about uh, former NFLer turned NFL analyst and sports uh, show host Marcellus Wiley. Uh, if we're not going to get leadership from our elected officials, and it seems like we're not going to get much, uh, if we're not going to get leadership from those who are in positions of authority in our civic and cultural institutions, and we understand how compromised, morally bankrupt, and afraid those individuals are, then uh, maybe it comes from the sports world, black Americans in the sports world, and and even a minority within the minority, right? Uh, Let's start with uh, Marcellus Wiley. Uh, He offered this riff on uh, Black Lives Matter, the organization, over the weekend, and I've been remiss in not getting to it until this point. Marcellus Wiley, again, former NFLer, was at ESPN for a long time now at Fox Sports 1. And uh, uh, his uh, mission now is to be a husband and a father. And so he looks at Black Lives Matter or anything else, frankly, through the prism of does this help to help me to fulfill my mission as a husband and a father? If it doesn't, I don't think I can be a part of it. Listen to this. I don't know how many people really look into the mission statement of Black Lives Matter, but I did. And when you look into it, there's a couple of things that jump out to me. Being a father and a husband, that's my mission in life right now. How do I reconcile that, what I just told you, with this mission statement that says, quote, we dismantle the patriarchal practice. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement. Children from single parent homes versus two parent homes. The children from the single parent homes, this is in 1995 I was reading this. Five times more likely to commit suicide. Six times more likely to be in poverty. Nine times more likely to drop out of high school. Ten times more likely to abuse chemical substances. Fourteen times more likely to commit rape. Twenty times more likely to end up in prison. And 32 times more likely to run away from home. I knew that. You know why I knew it? Because a lot of my friends didn't have family structures that were nuclear like mine, and they found themselves outside of their dreams and goals and aspirations. Mm-hmm. I mean, the uh, talking about the uh, nature of the family structure in America generally, in the black community specifically, is a verboten. I mean, it's been done before. This isn't the first time we visit this. We've been visiting this topic intermittently for the last 60 years. But it seems that even conservatives now, those who normally would stand up for the family, those who would normally stand up for a relatively what should be uncontroversial position as to the importance of the family as the building block of civilization. You don't hear much from them, do you? You hear, yes, uh, Black Lives Matter, Marxist organization. They want to destroy the family. That's a bad thing. But you don't really hear the sort of detail and the passion that Marcellus Wiley provides. Why is that? Maybe because so many have been slowly, methodically conceding ground to those who would undermine the family as a bulwark against government for generations now. And because of the fear of talking about something that could be that could be turned around on you as uh, being a racist or, you know, suffering from some other being a perpetrator of some other ism or suffering from some phobia. This is a time for courageous men and women. Marcellus Wiley is one. So are Jason Whitlock 
and Terry Crews. And when we come back, we're going to get to them because Whitlock in particular talks on this topic of courage versus cowardice. He gets it. We'll be right back. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We were talking about uh, Marcellus Wiley's comments uh, on his program, Fox Sports 1 about Black Lives Matter and his uh, and how it runs afoul of his mission to be a husband and a father uh, now that his playing days are over and he's a broadcaster. Uh, I wanted to get to the other gentlemen I mentioned, Jason Whitlock and Terry Crews. We've talked about both, particularly Whitlock over the last several weeks as he's written some outstanding columns. Very thoughtful guy, independent thinker, um, focused on his faith informing his professional and personal outlooks. Pretty good example he's setting. He was on with Tucker Carlson the other night and uh, got into Black Lives Matter again, as he has in written form, and also uh, talked about courage and cowardice in our time. The the omnipresence of the latter and the lack of the former. Uh, First, Whitlock on Black Lives Matter. And so when I look at what the NFL is doing, This goes against every value that the NFL has built itself on. Professional sports have built themselves on a celebration of Americana and the ideals and values that best exemplify America. They built themselves on unity and unifying the country. If the NFL starts out its season with everyone standing for Lift Every Voice and Sing, the Black National Anthem, and then virtually everyone on the field taking a knee when the Star Spangled Banner plays, I think it's going to be, if you remember the show Happy Days, the jump the shark moment when it's like, okay, Happy Days is over. The NFL will run off a nice fat chunk of its audience and will never be seen the same again because of the failure of leadership throughout the NFL. There's no way you can do any homework on Black Lives Matters and not see that it's a Marxist political organization. It's not about black death. It's not about black men. It is a political move. It's a communist political move. If for those people that stand on religious values, and this is where I say just the failure of men, I've seen many of these guys, they claim their Christianity and their religious beliefs. Do they understand Black Lives Matter? Communist Marxism is anti-religious. This is a historic, failure of men and leadership. This is cowardice at its highest level. This is the NFL jumping the shark and saying we've quit being who we said we are. We're now something else because our money's on the line and we don't stand for the values we said we stood for. See what happens when you don't have courage? You can't be who you said you were. You know, the good things you think about yourself, the virtues you believe you possess. That's the C.S. Lewis formulation applied. Jason Whitlock right there. Uh, Cowardice at the highest levels. The NFL is not who they say they are if they I mean, the visual he presents is a powerful one, isn't it? Can you imagine? Uh, It's a lovely song, but the black national anthem. Being played, everybody standing and then the national anthem being played and half or maybe more of the players on the field kneeling. You imagine that? 
but you can't be who you say you are if you don't have the courage to say what is true and what is not. And that includes the owners. He's not limiting it to the players and the coaches. He's also talking about the owners. And they won't even stand up for a system that has provided the opportunities for them to be you know, rich beyond most people's dreams and influential beyond most people's dreams as well compared to what Jason Whitlock is using to the influence he has and the platform he has compared to NFL owners, for example. All right. of them. Coward. Right. Not standing up for what they believe in. America has made them filthy rich and some of the most powerful people on the planet, and they're unwilling to defend the values they built their business on and the country that has enriched them incredibly. This, I mean, across the board, Tucker, I, politically, in the sports world, I'm looking at men fall out of cowardice. I'm looking at women fall out of cowardice. It's pervasive throughout this country. Pervasive throughout this country. Terry Crews is another exception. He's the uh, former NFL player. He played uh, in, we mentioned earlier in the week, this column that Whitlock had wrote about Terry Crews and about him getting uh, targeted by the Twitter mobs for um, saying that, uh, you know, are some white people good? Yes. Are some black people bad? Yes. And so this should be about uh, brotherhood based on our shared values. It shouldn't be a white black thing. Black Lives Matter shouldn't turn into black lives better. And for that, of course, Cruz was excoriated. Uh, Jason Whitlock wrote about him because they uh, played against one another in the Mac coming up in college. Terry Cruz went on to the NFL. Whitlock went on to be a sports writer. And then now Terry Cruz has gone on to be an actor. So uh, he went on with Don Lamone to uh, bat, uh, back and forth this matter of his perspective on Black Lives Matter. Uh, here's what uh, Terry Crews had to say in his defense. And when you have the leaders of the Black Lives Movement who are now talking about, you know, if we don't get our demands, we're going to burn it down. Uh, other black people who are talking about working with other whites and other uh, other races, they're, they're being viewed as sellouts or called Uncle Toms. It starts to, starts to, you start to understand that you are now, you know, being controlled. You're not being treated as loved. You're actually being controlled. Someone wants to control the narrative. And I viewed it as a very, very dangerous self-righteousness that was developing that, you know, that, that really viewed themselves as better. It was a, almost a supremacist move. So let, let me jump where in, Where they viewed that black, their black lives mattered a lot more than mine. Their black lives matter a lot more than mine. And we're not even going to bother playing Don Lamone's response because it's not worthy of being played. We're talking about courageous men in this segment, not talking about the likes of Don Lamone. Uh, and uh, what Terry Crews is pointing out uh, is uh, important. Dangerous self-righteousness. He's on to something. Uh, David Azerod, friend of the show, you've heard him on this program before, assistant professor at Hillsdale College's Van Andel Graduate School of Government in D.C. Uh, on rejecting tribalism. He uh, offers this. The U.S. is acting like a budding totalitarian theocracy, one in which all must kneel at the altar of wokeness. Those who refuse are not punished by the state, not yet anyway, but by corporate America and the media. They run the risk of losing their livelihoods and being forever defamed on the Internet. You know, and that's the risk that uh, Marcellus Wiley and Terry Crews and Jason Whitlock have run. Uh, one can only hope their courage is contagious. But they won't kneel. 
and hopefully they're an example to others to not kneel before the mob as well. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back. Uh, building on uh, my uh, observations about uh, Whitlock, Cruz, and Wiley. How about BLM versus PPP financing? Just sticking on Black Lives Matter and the underwriting of it for a minute. Uh, the uh, emphasis in the last 24 hours has been look at all these companies who got payroll protection loans through the program that was set up with almost unanimity between the White House and both chambers of Congress. And yet the pot shots that are being taken at high profile individuals or organizations that took disaster relief money after the government took their business, at least for a period of time, by shutting them down. It's really remarkable. And some Republicans and conservatives are piling on this. It's uh, it's something. But just on Black Lives Matter, uh, you should hear the corporations that are looking to uh, pay their way to absolution and protection from the Jacobins. Eighteen companies gave money to the Marxist Black Lives Matter organization, as so characterized by the gentleman you just heard from in the previous segments. DoorDash, Deckers, Amazon. Gatorade, Microsoft, Glossier, 23andMe, Airbnb, Unilever, Bungie, Nabisco, Dropbox, Fitbit, Devolver Digital, Square Enix, that uh, that game company, and Tinder. Um, how about some focus on those corporations financing an organization that seeks to transform America into a socialist nation? But, I mean, it's in their own words. It's on their website, What We Believe. Uh, with respect to the PPP pot shots, the Wall Street Journal editorialized nicely on the topic. What do Citizens Against Government Waste, Nancy Pelosi's husband and Jared Kushner's family have in common? All getting unfairly maligned for having dared take the government's offer of financial help to survive the government imposed pandemic shutdowns. We wanted to keep people on the payrolls so they were not dislodged from their jobs. We want to keep companies afloat when the government has taken their ability to stay open and conduct commerce. Was it imperfect? Yeah. Any half a trillion dollar gambit by the federal government is going to be less than flawlessly executed. This just in, which is why people making those arguments now should be predisposed to skepticism about such government gambits, maybe predisposed to skepticism about the knee jerk shutdowns, too. Oh, by the way. But the bottom line is this. And you heard our conversation on the show last week with SBA Administrator Carranza, five million Small businesses funded SBA data as of May 30th, PPP provided support to some 84 percent of small business employees, underwriting some 51 million jobs. Wasn't perfect. It's a lot of money that was funneled throughout the nation through our private banks in the course of eight weeks. It is not going to be without incident, but it was the constitutionally proper thing to do. And practically, it is making the economic damage that was inflicted less severe, at least for the time being, so long as we stop playing uh, whack-a-mole, COVID-19 whack-a-mole with lockdown. So we'll see. But it was absolutely the morally right thing to do and the practically intelligent thing to do, given a bunch of 
you know, less than ideal options based on the knee-jerk lockdown policy that was uh, essentially consensus position. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, Representative Ilhan Omar, one of the Socialist Spice Girls, or the Squad, as they're more popularly known. I'm trying to popularize Socialist Spice Girls. I think it's more accurate. She doesn't uh, just want to defund police, uh, nor do her uh, bandmates. She wants to do more than that, as she said in her own words. And her own words are very helpful. Representative Ilhan Omar dismantling not just the police as an institution, but the entire political and economic system of America. As long as our economy and political systems prioritize profit without considering who is profiting, who is being shut out, we will perpetuate this inequality. So we cannot stop at criminal justice system. We must begin the work of dismantling the whole system of oppression wherever we find it. Mm-hmm. The whole system of oppression. Uh, that is not inconsistent with Seattle City Councilwoman. Yes, yeah, Seattle proper, not uh, the area formerly known as CHOP. Seattle City Councilwoman Shama Stewart on uh, any opposition to the quote-unquote Amazon payroll tax that the city of Seattle has imposed on businesses there. If Jeff Bezos were to oppose the imposition of that tax as he did previously, then uh, Shama Stewart is putting him on notice that uh, she and her friends are coming for him and every other Fortune 500 company. I have a message for Jeff Bezos and his class. If you attempt again to overturn the Amazon tax, working people will go all out in the thousands to defeat you. And we will not stop there because you see, we are fighting for far more than this tax. We are preparing the ground for a different kind of society. And if you, Jeff Bezos, want to drive that process forward by lashing out against us in our modest demands, then so be it, because we are coming for you and your rotten system. We are coming to dismantle this deeply oppressive, racist, sexist, violent, utterly bankrupt system of capitalism, this police state. We cannot and will not stop until we overthrow it and replace it with a world based instead on solidarity, genuine democracy, and equality, a socialist world. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for the clarity. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Professor Carol Swain. She is the host of Be the People podcast. She's a member of Black Voices for Trump's advisory board and a former tenured professor at both Vanderbilt and Princeton universities. Uh, Professor Swain, uh, the comments from Ilhan Omar and uh, Councilwoman uh, Sharma Stewart, is is that what you meant when you uh, uh, wrote your piece, America's Sovereignty is Teetering on a Precipice? part of it, it's clear to me that America's enemies have joined forces to bring down our nation, and they have one agenda, and while they may not agree on all issues themselves, they will sort out their disagreements later, but the goal right now is to take down America and its sovereignty. And you have, uh, in addition to uh, Omar, uh, the other comrades of hers, Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley two members of the House, uh, introduced the so-called Breathe Act, 
which uh, would uh, include both defunding the police and providing reparations for people who are either black or were harmed by police officers. Um, so, you know, they're moving forward in, in legislative form, too. I don't know how far that goes, but the point is that they're continuing their uh, assault. Well, I can tell you that the reparations uh, movement, the groundwork was laid some years ago at a conference in Durban. And so this has been a goal that the leftists have wanted for a long time. And I find that with the Black Lives Matters movement, that there are a number of Muslims that are involved in that movement as well. And these people are united by a hatred of the United States and all that it represents. And some of them talk very openly about a hatred of white people. And this is disturbing because the uh, level of racism and the hatred that they are allowed to espouse as racial and ethnic minorities would be totally unacceptable. It's hate speech, but they're never held to account for it. And they're also, uh, they've also seemingly been effective, not completely, but um, significantly in getting Christians in America to either remain silent or act in total contravention to their stated Christian beliefs. Well, that's because Christians have been deceived by the language of social justice. Uh, On the surface, social justice sounds like Black Lives Matter. That's a true statement in the sense that all lives matter. Black lives matter, white lives matter. But we know that it's hate speech to say that all lives matter. The left is totally insane. But for Christians, you know, the social justice has taken over the church. And that was one of the goals of the Marxists, the communists have always wanted to uh, infiltrate the churches and use religion in a way that would uh, neutralize it. And they have neutralized it by causing some churches to become more interested in social justice and trying to solve mankind's problems than the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us those problems will be with us until Jesus returns. Do you think that they uh, recognize that if you can uh, effectively eradicate Christianity, uh, whether people can still profess to be Christians, but so long as they don't act in furtherance of uh, Christianity, that's when you have uh, really turned a corner in terms of the transformation of this country, as Councilwoman Stewart said, into a socialist nation. I can tell you that, think about Christianity. The people that I know that are the calmest about the, quote, pandemic are Christian believers, because we are just not living in fear about some virus. And right now, I think the masses of people are being manipulated. They're being deceived. The messaging from the government changes every other day. Nothing uh, is is reliable. Nothing can be trusted. But I think that amidst all of that, Christians have a calmness among them that secular people don't. And it's very disturbing to me to see the church borrow from the language of critical race theory, uh, the re- the Baptist denomination, which I'm a part of the Southern Baptist, they adopted a resolution last summer to include critical race theory and intersectionality as analytical tools to understand race in America. And so they've gone to the atheists and the um, you know secular humanists to help them understand race in America when they have the entire Bible before them. I wanted to get your take on this uh, letter that's getting so much attention, this open letter that was signed by a bunch of uh, mainly left academics and celebrities, uh, authors like J.K. Rowling. 
Um, but also included uh, some uh, erstwhile sensible people that you know, colleagues of yours like John McWhorter at Columbia University, Coleman Hughes at the Manhattan Institute. That includes language. This is an open letter saying, oh, we need to cancel the cancel culture before the cancel culture cancels us. The left, <laughs> I think a lot of leftists worried that they're going to be on the menu in the not too distant future. But in the letter, they talk about, oh, the problem is that uh, Donald Trump is a powerful ally of those who represent illiberalism in the West, that they're right wing demagogues trying to exploit uh, the dogma of the left and the cancel culture, that uh, the the radical right is the uh, source of censoriousness. But that's now spreading more into our culture from the radical right. It seems to me that they have this uh, purposefully. Well, number one, just just factually untrue, and the progression is definitely untrue. But but are you at all concerned that you have the likes of John McWhorter and Coleman Hughes uh, signing on to this letter? I mean, I know that there are a lot of black voices that we agree with about 90 percent of what they uh, say that hate Donald Trump. And so if they're never Trumpers, uh, it would probably be very easy for them to sign on to a letter like that. So that would be my position on it. And yes, the left has already gone after the left. They're not safe and they don't have any influence. So it's not very likely that the leaders of uh, this progressive movement will care one way or another about their letter. It's just position taken. Maybe McWhorter and Coleman Hughes, maybe they didn't read the letter before they signed on. Maybe they just read the headline. Well, to your point, too, I mean, this letter has served as uh, nothing more than uh, shaking a red cape in the face of a bull because you've already had two of the signatories repudiate their signatures and effectively apologize for signing, which sort of is ironic in proving the point of the letter, even though the idea of a free America being a place of free thought and free speech uh, shouldn't be in controversy. But I guess that's a commentary on our time. Well, I mean, the ones that are trying to get their names off of it, it ought to be McWhorter and and Coleman Hughes. But, you know, some of them are part of the system. And again, we take our allies where we can find them. And maybe my most generous interpretation of their signatures would be that they did not read the letter before they signed it. She is Carol Swain. She's the host of the Be the People podcast, member of Black Voices for Trump's advisory board and a former tenured professor at both Vanderbilt and at Princeton University's Professor Swain. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up after the break, I'm going to speak with uh, Evan Owens and Adam Davis. They are a part of an organization called Reboot Recovery, and Reboot Blue specifically focused on military families and the families of first responders, law enforcement in particular, in terms of coping with the side effects of the COVID-19 response. So stay tuned for that. Thanks. You're unbelievable. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We've talked uh, quite a bit about uh, the secondary effects of the policy decisions around COVID-19, the shutdowns specifically. So the illness, the death, the lives versus lives calculation, lives of people who get infected with COVID-19 versus the lives of people who suffer from depression, who turn to alcohol, the uh, deaths of despair projections based on the lockdown, understanding how people 
react, some percentage of people react when they lose their livelihood, how that has an impact on their physical health and the choices they make. So there's deaths of despair. And then there's also the people that are fear addled and thus aren't going to the hospital to get the checkups they need to get the treatments they need. The period where you had, uh, quote unquote, elective procedures sidelined because it was all hands on deck for COVID-19. So it's a much more complicated picture than the press corps presents it to be, of course. And then within specific cohorts, our next guests uh, are focused uh, specifically on military families and the impact that uh, the virus and our response to the virus is having on military families, or at least the threat that our response poses to military families, perhaps disproportionately, as we understand those who served our country uh, have heightened incidences of despair or sort of, you know, illnesses, challenges associated with despair. Evan Owens is a co-founder and executive director of Reboot Recovery. Adam Davis is a former law enforcement officer and speaker for Reboot Recovery. And Evan and Adam join us now. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much. Um, so uh, this uh, piece that uh, that Evan, you penned with, uh, I assume, your wife, Dr. Jenny Owens, and that is uh, about the clear and present threat to military families during the COVID-19 crisis. And you're you're not talking about the virus. What are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, I say in the article and I've said elsewhere, the, the greatest threat to a lot of veterans and even a lot of first responders during this time is not a virus. That's not the greatest. The, great, the greatest threat is often some form of self-destruction, as you alluded to. And a lot of times, you know, routine for all of us is what keeps a lot of us from drifting back into the habits that maybe got us into a difficult situation in the first place, that regimented routine. But when that routine is tossed out the window, a lot of us find ourselves drifting back into those old destructive patterns. And that's really in, in the work that Reboot Recovery is doing, you know, both with the first responder community, law enforcement, and as well as with with the veteran community. Those are the things that we're focused on, because that is truly, I believe, the greatest risk, risk to these populations right now. And, and so that's where the focus on these specific families, military families, first responder families comes in because of of uh, the heightened incidence of these, uh, uh, you know, the, the, these potential pitfalls within those communities. Yeah, and, and Adam on the call with me, I'll be able to speak to this more, but even obviously with the increased uh, tension between law enforcement community and general public, that's even adding more stress. And it seems like it's becoming harder and harder for people, especially law enforcement right now, to find safe places to process what they feel and what they think and kind of what they are going through. Yeah. It's becoming really hard to do that. And maybe, I don't know, maybe Adam can share more on yeah. that. Yeah, you know, I think one of the greatest things we talk to, you know, I've, I've traveled across the country talking to Americans who, who support law enforcement, and they want to do something. And so we've, we work to create a place for law enforcement to get help, navigate through the issues that they're dealing with. And we've also created a way for people to reach out to law enforcement and help them and show their support. But, you know, having that place, having that community that backs them, because you want law enforcement, you don't want to defund law enforcement, you don't want to disband law enforcement, you need cops in your community. You need good cops, and we need good cops for the foreseeable future uh, to fight against crime and violence in our community. So, But Evan, I'm sure, can tell you about a great program called Reboot Blue and uh, what we're doing to reach cops and help address uh, and hopefully head off uh, increasing um, potential for suicides in the law enforcement community as, as trauma and as it's prolonged. Oh, so, so, yeah, tell us about Reboot Blue. 
Well, yeah, so we have first responder courses around the country that are free to first responders and their families to plug into. But also, if people go to RebootBlue.com, we've got a book that actually Adam has written uh, that's called Behind the Badge. It's an amazing book to help people kind of process what's what, you know, day in and day out, a daily guide. But all that being said is to go, if people go to Reboot Blue right now, we're doing kind of a, a thing where we're trying to put uh, Behind the Badge book in the hands of every first responder. Uh, every law enforcement officer in the country is about 800 to 900,000 of them. And right now we're just asking Americans, you know, so many people I call, uh, I talk to, they say, man, we want to do something. We don't know what to do. This yeah. is an easy thing. They can go online. They can do it. Every $25 donation sends a book to a law enforcement person, puts it right in their hands. And so this is an easy thing you can do. You know, $50 is two books, 75 is three, right? So I mean, this is a very tangible thing as opposed, you know, outrage is not a strategy for improving the situa- situation. Uh, supporting organizations like us and others who are doing work on the ground with veterans and first responders. That's a real strategy. That's actually working. That's right. <laughs> uh, when it comes to uh, sort of the telltale signs that uh, somebody is in need of, of help, um, uh, you know, w- what is it that people should be sort of on the lookout, family and friends should be on the lookout for with respect to uh, uh, maybe a, a family or member or a friend who's uh, military uh, or law enforcement? Um, so thank you for asking that question. Uh, if, if everybody knew the signs, we'd have a, a smaller problem. So thank you for that. You know, I'd say the first is uh, if there's been a sudden uh, resurgence of addiction behaviors, that's a big one. If there's increased isolation, a person pulling away from others in their community, another big one that is oftentimes overlooked, a lot of times a trigger for suicidality is a broken relationship. There's a divorce. There's a separation. Somebody leaves. Those are signs that we need to get closer to these folks. Um and then the other one that I would just say is if there's any form of self-neglect or self-harm or, or even threatening of self-harm um, or talking about it, those are not necessarily natural behaviors, uh, and we want to get out ahead of those. And a great thing people can do, not everybody is a counselor, but everybody can kind of know you know, CPR, if you will. And if, if people do, they can just simply ask questions, make sure the person is doing all right. They can escort them to somebody who can help them and stay with them until they're safe, whether that's a, a hospital or whether that's going on you know, a suicide hotline or, or even getting them registered. If it's less acute, getting them registered for a reboot recovery course online for free. I mean, there's all those options. But the important part, sometimes, you know, that escorting piece is what's overlooked. It's sort of like, hey, he's in trouble or she's in trouble. Let's just call this number. But doing it with the person and guiding them with them is, is really, it's shown statistically to really reduce suicide completion. But you ha- you do leave open the possibility, such as in my case, where the person engages in more social isolation and that actually makes them happier. They're actually enjoying being right. more isolated right. from humanity. Um, and now they can. Uh, I, I'm just giving you my personal experience. It's just, you know, the other side of this. And now I do engage in self-destructive behavior. It's called golf. But I, I'm not I'm not so sure. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, so there's that, too. You just have to, you know, the, the people that are the, you know, the loners in the world. Yeah. And they enjoy. We, now we don't. We don't have a group. We don't have a group for golf recovery. We haven't really gotten into that market. <laughs> you should. But you should, uh, I appreciate a, your sacrifice, sir. Yeah, yeah, thank I you. Your well, sacrifice. you know, I I don't like to throw the term hero around. Uh, but uh, yeah, right, yeah. right. <laughs> Evan Owens and Adam Davis. Evan Owens, co-founder and executive director of Reboot Recovery. Adam Davis, former law enforcement officer, speaker for Reboot Recovery. And uh, for more information. Um, uh, including on their uh, Reboot Blue program, uh, Reboot uh, the, the website, uh, gentlemen, Re- Reboot Recovery. This is reboot, RebootBlue.com. 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 Great. Evan Owens, Adam Davis, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back. And we talked earlier in the show about men of courage. And uh, that, uh, of course, uh, is not a complete conversation without including the party bros, Chad Kroger and J.T. Parr. These are two gentlemen out in the West Coast uh, who have um, fearlessly fought to keep house parties legal in L.A. to uh, institute a non-Labor Day dedicated to those who don't work. Uh, a national holiday for the unemployed. Uh, they proposed that at West Hollywood. Well, they're at it again. They've got a new cause. And it's just as important as their previous causes. And we need, you know, something to be optimistic about in these uh, times of pandemic and uh, racial tension. Uh, and perhaps um, a tribute to Tom Cruise can bring people together, including around uh, who we should be memorializing and the name in terms of uh, building names and monuments, space stations. Go ahead. Next speaker, please. Uh, Sorry for the delay. I did legs yesterday. Um, But what up, council? My name is Chad Kroger. I'm an activist in Stoke Lord. I come to you in the gnarliest of times. I don't know if you looked outside. But it's pretty nuts. There's something called a pandemic going on. When the QT first happened, I managed to stay stoked. I didn't have to work, and the president gave me 1,200 bones. But then it started to kind of suck. The beach is closed. My buddy Dolan's GF broke up with him over his Call of Duty addiction. And J. Crew went bankrupt. It was deleterious to my tan, my bro's love life, and my summer shirt collection. Mm. Honestly, I was ready to let Rona Sadness take over my body, but then something incredible happened. They announced Tom Cruise was making his next movie in space. In a time when most bros are trapped indoors, Tom Cruise is going into the ionosphere. He's still crushing it 24-7 and observing the ultimate form of social distancing. He's such a beast. And uh, yeah, he's made us realize that there's nothing the C-virus or anything else can do to stop human beings from persevering to the greatest of heights and accomplishments. So that's why we need to honor this maverick. And how do we do that? We do it by renaming the International Space Station the Tom Cruise Space Station. Imagine Tom Cruise, Council, floating through space. And what does he see? Tom freaking Cruise on the side of the freaking craft. That'll inspire him to do a better performance, which will lead to a better film, which will lead to a happier planet. So, yeah, I'm stoked. And uh, it's, I mean, it's easy. All it takes is a rocket and some paint. So thank you, Council. And yeah, all right, later. <laughs> uh, you know, what can started starting at Huntington Beach, Huntington Beach, California, who knows where Chad and JT can take this. And, and of course, uh, you think about uh, what this could spawn, a Tom Cruise space station, maybe the next SpaceX vessel could be named after Goose. Uh, his uh, partner in this, uh, also activist, Chad Kroger, excuse me, uh, that was Chad, uh, J.T. Parr then followed up to uh, close the show for Chad. What up, Council? My name is J.T. Parr. 
Chad just hit the nail right on the head and fired me up. He's getting a huge round of applause outside. That's getting me fired up. My dog really crushed that. And I think his point that it's important that we name things after people we admire. I think we've learned that recently. And Tom Cruise is someone that we can all admire. Let me be vulnerable for a sec. This pandemic has scared me. And Chad says that's okay. But growing up, I didn't get scared of stuff like this. I was only afraid of report cards and intimacy. Mm-hmm. But lately, but in general, I would just stare death in the face, like rip on a dirt bike or roll down a hill with my body limp or moon traffic. And it always fired people up. But as I've aged, I noticed that I don't push it as hard. I worry I've lost my edge. One person who sharpens my edge, though, is Tom Cruise. When I watch his behind-the-scenes for Mission Impossible, I suddenly forget what fear is, and I take charge and hustle to a busy intersection and moon people. I feel whole again. This may sound frivolous, but there is power in letting it rip, counsel. In these times more than ever, we need someone to fill our hearts with courage. A symbol that says, even if we're stuck inside, a determined human can still go farther than any other actor would dare. Indeed. Tom Cruise has all the right moves. This is seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show you may remember uh the next person we're going to hear from as uh one of the bosom buddies uh no i'm not talking about peter scolari he uh, appeared on the Today Show, the individual I'm talking about, Tom Hanks, to uh, play the role of a uh, infectious disease expert. His credential being that he and his wife, Rita Wilson, uh, were infected with COVID. And um, boy, for somebody who uh, fashions himself as so commonsensical and uh, credential because of experience, he doesn't seem to have the science exactly right. Uh, let's hear from Mr. Hanks on uh, his experience and the treatment they received in Australia. What were they doing for other people was making sure we weren't passing it along to anybody else. We had the coronavirus. We were giving it away to anybody that uh, came within distance to us. And so we were, I can't, we, we were in awfully good hands and we were very much aware of that. We were maybe exploring some brand new territories about the, the personal as well as the public versions of right. having COVID-19. Yeah. Um, so knowledgeable. Again, I'm not a Hollywood actor, so uh, a de facto expert on all things, particularly complicated things that we don't know a lot about. uh, And we're learning every day, like infectious disease, this virus. But um, one of the things that we do know is that the idea that this six foot circle around you, if anybody shall enter it like a game of lava, they get infected. Uh, No, that's actually not true. There's no science behind six feet. There's little science behind social distancing. Does it make some sense? Sure, it does. And and uh, 
part of science is common sense. I, I understand. But uh, this is all experimental. And what we know or have a pretty good idea of, it is not uh, coming within six feet of someone who's infected and you automatically get it like you've broken through their force field and you get zapped by COVID-19. It's sustained exposure in close quarters. And even then, it's uneven, isn't it? As we've seen from cases where some people in a household with an infection are infected and others are not. As we've seen on cruise ships where maybe a quarter or even a fifth of passengers are infected, but not everybody is. In fact, the majority are not. So it's a little bit more complicated than Tom Hanks wants to make it sound. And, of course, then you get infected, and then if you're a person of any public profile, as we've talked about a lot, it is reported breathlessly as some sort of death sentence. But that's okay. Tom Hanks has a hashtag for us. You know, yeah, we're all in it together. It's uh, too long. How about hashtag do your part? There is a darkness on the edge of town here, folks, and it is... Let's not let's not let's not confuse the fact it's killing people. OK, you can argue what the numbers are. Ah, it's not killing that many. The, 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 the numbers have gone down, et cetera. Yeah, that's right. It's killing people. Uh, and you can say, well, you know, traffic accidents kill an awful lot of people, too. That uh, traffic accident happens because a lot of drivers aren't doing their part. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not using their turn signals. They're mm-hmm. driving too fast They're not paying attention to their to their environment. There is, I don't know how common sense has uh, has somehow been put in question in, mm-hmm. in regards to this. Mm hmm. Common sense in question. So uh, you wash your hands, social distance, wear a mask. That's Tom Hanks's panacea. Well, again, I'm not a Hollywood actor. Uh, neither was uh, is Dr. Uh, Joseph Lapido from UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine, who we spoke with on the show yesterday. And I'll just keep referencing different uh, actual medical doctors and infectious disease experts. Yesterday it was... Chris von Schaffelve, who's an epidemiologist with a particular expertise in bat-borne viruses. Again, he's no Hollywood actor, so we can't rely on his expertise the same way we can Tom Hanks, of course. Same thing with Dr. Lapido. But on the issue of masks, again, just a one point here, because it, this is so commonsensical, it is beyond question. It is not open for discussion. Dr. Lapido. Now there's sort of this hysteria about masks, and it's for many people, for some people, it's been transformed into a moral issue that undoubtedly is creating more conflict and tension and basically pitting people against each other and leading people to lose sight of the bigger picture, which is how we actually keep the most vulnerable Americans from becoming ill from COVID-19. Consider the fact, right, we're months into this thing and we're still hearing about mask shortages. We're still hearing about potential shortages with some of the medications that have come out so far in randomized trials to be effective. These are the questions we really need to be focused on. You know, why are we still worrying about rationing treatments for patients with COVID-19? And when are we going to be able to stop having to worry about it? When are we going to fix that problem? But we're not asking, and what else can we do for older people, for more vulnerable people? We're not asking those questions because right now there's so much infighting about people trying to force other people to wear masks when some people who don't want to wear them have completely legitimate reasons. And it's not because they don't care about you or they don't care about your, your, you know, your grandma. They just have their own, you know, there's the data, right? So what we get from our clinical trials And then there's what we do about the data in terms of the type of policy we make. And we're in a place right now where our policy response is really diverting attention 
from the really important goal of thinking about all the different ways we can keep people from getting seriously ill and dying from COVID-19. Yeah, similar to the conversation we had earlier in the show with Dr. Ellen from Johns Hopkins, formerly. And uh, also the matter of people are dying. Understand it's a serious business. Now, we also understand that uh, the experience is very different and very different in, in different cohorts, don't we? But that's not the way it's discussed. And then you have the issue of just changing the way we keep score. That's no longer about hospitalizations and deaths. It's no longer about serious illness and life-threatening illness. It's just about caseload, even if the cases are asymptomatic, Dr. Lapido. That's exactly what we're seeing. And it's just terrible. I mean, it it really is. For one thing, it's effective. People are actually doing a really good job of presenting the piece of the picture they're most interested in for whatever reason. And they're not providing context. And it's because of the fear surrounding this virus, they're effective in sort of getting people wrapped up, thinking that never mind the fact that the chance in most communities in the United States right now, the prevalence of active COVID-19 infection is somewhere around one in 100, maybe between one and two people in 100. In some places, it's probably less than one in 100. So, like, that's the chance that, like, that person that you're seeing is carrying the virus and potentially contagious. Dr. Lapido, uh, I keep misstating it, Dr. Ladapo from UCLA. You know, interesting observations, right? Maybe his uh, expertise is worthy of some consideration. But again, I mean, he's not a Hollywood actor like Tom Hanks. This is Dan Prophet. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back. Turning from uh, junk science in our conversation with Michael Schellenberger to junk reporting. Holman Jenkins is on the case over at the Wall Street Journal, pointing up the uh, Washington Post coverage of President Trump's July 3rd speech at Mount Rushmore. And uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier in the week, sort of at a top line level. He gets into it a bit deeper. This is helpful and uh, noteworthy. The post account of President Trump's speech. President Trump's unyielding push to preserve Confederate symbols and the legacy of white domination crystallized by his harsh denunciation of the racial justice movement Friday night at Mount Rushmore. That was the uh, (laughs) the lead. And Holman Jenkins, point, Holman Jenkins points out, point of order, Trump made no reference to the Confederacy or any of its symbols. His only reference was to the Civil War and to Abraham Lincoln. And the abolition of slavery is the fulfillment of the American Revolution, I would add. Right. And he also invoked Martin Luther King, as well as providing uh, Cliff's Notes versions of the history of the four presidents who are memorialized on Mount Rushmore. Uh, This is the the Washington Post account is consistent with the Democrat Party's talking point, as provided by Tammy Duckworth. We played earlier in the week. uh, Trump spending all his time talking about dead traders. Oh, really? Lincoln, traitor? Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, traitors? King, Martin Luther King, traitor? That's what he talked about. And Jenkins goes on to make the point of, of where we're at. And uh, where we're at is that 
tens of millions of voters who plan to vote against Mr. Trump in the fall hardly need the Washington Post lies to give them more reason to do so. But millions of others will vote for Mr. Trump or consider voting for him exactly because the Washington Post lies about him. Their wavering support at this point in his ill starred presidency is sustained only by the deranged dishonesty of his opponents. Their wavering support, meaning the voters, not the post. Their wavering support at this point in his ill starred presidency is sustained only by the deranged dishonesty of his opponents. In other words, the Washington Post and uh, the D.C. press corps continues to do Trump a favor, even as he has a great moment on with the speech he provided at Mount Rushmore and then follows it up this week with uh, going off into the wilderness uh, unnecessarily and unhelpfully on Bubba Wallace. In sum, where are we? Jenkins concludes, America faces the virus, the protests, a new and dangerous tension with China and the most tumultuous election in recent memory. And it does so without thought leadership worth the name, with only intellectual and emotional chaos from some of our once credible news organizations. And he's talking about those once credible news organizations who've destroyed themselves with no assistance from Trump. They've done it all themselves. CNN comes to mind, but also other institutions who've wrecked their own reputations, including the FBI and universities. And so where do we find ourselves without thought leadership worth the name? in tumultuous times, making them increasingly dangerous times. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.